Nobody in here went to Princeton, did they? All right. Wow. Yesterday I was, um, I was in the kitchen like helping with dinner stuff, and I could just hear shouting downstairs, shoot the ball! And I said, oh, that's, that's never good. That's never good. We just got beat up by a bunch of rich kids from New Jersey. It's awful. It's the worst. It's the worst. But if you're from New Jersey, welcome. My name's Craig. And I have the privilege of helping lead this ragamuffin group of folks we call Compass Church. I want to talk about peace this morning. Peace. How do you experience peace? How do you experience peace when there's maybe a rupture, when there's a break in relationship? How do you experience peace when there's a rupture, a break in a relationship, and only one party is moving toward the other party? How do you experience peace when only one person wants peace? There are churches all around America, all around America, filled with people some of whom sit on this side of the room and others sit on this side of the room because if they sat on this side of the room together, it'd be painful. It'd be hard. We don't know what would happen. What keeps us from moving toward peace is, well, what if, what if I... What if I take a step? What if I move toward peace and it's not reciprocated? How do you experience peace when you can't control so much of what's not creating peace? Right? I was reminded this week, someone said, like, how do we be safe in a world that's just not safe? There's so much out of our control. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when it comes to parents and children, there have been a couple a couple reported cases of there being uh, ruptures in those relationships. They've not yet been verified, but we're looking into it. There have been a few parents and children who have had ruptures in their relationships. It's been hard. As a parent, how do you move toward your kid when it feels like they're sometimes pulling you in, but many times pushing you out? And as a kid, how do you, how do you move toward a parent when you've tried? You said, here I am. Here's how I've experienced you. You've been vulnerable. You've opened up, and it's just been met with a stone wall. What does peace look like there? How do we experience peace in a world where it's not safe and in a world where we can move toward peace, but what if that's not reciprocated? Now we're ready to talk about this crazy guy in the wilderness named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is asking the question, how do we experience peace with God? How do we experience peace with God? And, and what happens if, if we move and he doesn't move back? You ever prayed and heard nothing? Have you, ever, have you ever showed up and, and trusted that God was leading you somewhere? You're just like, I'm just, I'm just trying to follow God. And it's met with pain, more confusion, things get worse. What does peace look like? 
How do we experience peace in our relationship with God? John the Baptist is asking those questions. So John asks a question. Jesus does not provide an answer in the way we would expect. John is asking the question, how do we prepare ourselves for oneness with God? That's what we're talking about right now. How do we be, how do we be one with God? What does that look like? How do, we, how do we take steps? What does it look like? And Jesus does not answer John's question. John asks a question and does not get an answer that he's looking for. Jesus doesn't answer John's questions with words. Jesus shows he is the answer to John's question. The passage that we're looking at is a question and an answer. And the question is, how do we experience peace if we're the only ones working toward peace? How do we experience peace in a not safe world? And Jesus does something so incredible. This is the first time he presents himself in John's gospel. John, the gospel writer, who's different from John the Baptist, John, the gospel writer, is really carefully introducing Jesus. And the verb that he uses to introduce Jesus is amazing. The thing that Jesus does, the first thing he does on the scene as he shows up, John looks. John's asking the question, and John looks. And what do we see Jesus do? He sees Jesus coming toward him. Jesus coming toward him. It is not an accident. It's deep with intentionality and purpose and meaning that when Jesus is introduced in John's gospel, he's moving toward us. He's taking the first step. So the question to how do we experience peace in a world where peace seems to be in high demand, how do we experience peace is that Jesus makes the first move. And the name for that is grace. Our oneness with God is built on a foundation of grace. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve this, but it's coming toward us. And so now, with that foundation of Jesus makes the first move, we're still in that world saying, how do we experience peace? Now we can look at John's questions. Now we can see what's going on. How he's trying to prepare us, not just to have this one-time experience with union with God. Not to just say, oh yeah, I... I I experienced God in powerful ways. God showed up once. But to have that be a lifestyle, a rhythm, a cadence of our lives, that we're not going through life alone, that in a not peaceful world, we are united to a peaceful God, a God making that first move. How do we really experience that? When we see that Jesus makes the first move, we can look back at John's questions and get answers. Oh. That's what's going on here. That's how we experience peace. John really is preparing us to meet Jesus. But when Jesus comes, whoa, 
That changes everything. And the question, there's just one question this morning for you. Do you trust that Jesus is moving toward you? Not that Jesus loves you, this you know, which is fine. But that Jesus is actively moving toward you with purpose and intention that Jesus is coming after you, that he's making the first move, that he's extending his hands, offering peace. He is saying, here I am. Where are you? I'll go there. Will you trust that Jesus is moving toward you? That's the question John's preparing for us. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. There's a lot to explain about this passage, but let me just say before we get there, what's like the Midwest version of this? Lollapalooza, okay? Lollapalooza. In California, they have Coachella, which is where just a bunch of, again, rich hipsters go out in the desert, listen to their favorite bands, all right? That's not normal behavior, right? People have jobs, they got to pay their rent, but they'll drop everything and go out in the desert to listen to bands, Okay? In John chapter 1, there's basically like a spiritual Coachella or spiritual Lollapalooza, all right? It is not normal. See, sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, John is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Yep, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. Like, what? That's crazy behavior, okay? When was the last time you took a day off from work, drove out to the middle of nowhere to hear somebody teach? Like, I mean, like the desert, to hear some guy teach who was wearing weird clothes and ate grasshoppers, basically. All right? This is unusual behavior. And the Bible knows that. It's saying, hey, something wild is happening. And it gets the attention of the religious establishment. They're like, something wild is happening. Let's go check it out. Hey, Mr. the Baptist, this is weird behavior. What's going on here? And he's like, well, something very big. I'm preparing everyone to be one with God. And like, what does that mean? That's what we're looking at right now. All right? So please, sometimes we make the Bible so boring right? This is a really big deal, all right? I've never taken a day off from work to go to the desert to hear some spiritual teacher teach. Did you hear, though, this is a total aside, the people did that with Jared Leto, you know, the actor Jared Leto? He, like, didn't know corona happened because he was, like, leading a group of people in the desert, like a teaching thing, and there's pictures of it. They're all wearing white, okay? That's weird, right? That's like what's happening here. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. There's a voice of someone crying out in the wilderness. Here we go. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I, I am not the Messiah. Not me. Not me. And I asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, who are you? Please give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then Do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one 
you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. That's an amazing verse. I just, I just want to, we're going to come back to it again and again and again. It's a fascinating verse, John 128. All this happened where? Great. Okay. Where's Bethany? I don't know. We don't know. We'll figure it out though. It's great. Okay. Remember Bethany. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see what John saw. We want to see your Spirit come down and live with us. We want to see that you're making the first move. But Lord, that's hard sometimes. Our experience tells us a different story. Our pain tells us a different story. Our friends, our own conscience, the narratives we tell about ourselves tell us a different story. God, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you trust that Jesus is moving toward you this morning? Not that Jesus vaguely loves you, not that Jesus even likes you, but that he's moving toward you this morning. This morning, today. Will you trust that? Here's how John is preparing the way for that. John is, John is again, it's odd behavior, it's weird, okay? This whole idea of uh, verse 128, all this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let me again paint the picture for you. In Israel, at this time, Israel was experiencing anti-Semitism on the level that was, has not been experienced since like the Holocaust for us today. It was, it, and it was probably worse. They were experiencing an amazing amount of anti-Semitism. They were, trying to be, they were being oppressed by every, every nation that came into Israel just crushed them and just kept them down. And so there were many movements of people coming saying, I'm here to rescue and liberate Israel. And so one of the ways that people would do that is they would head to the temple and they'd tell people, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to rescue you. Follow me. Here we go. And then end badly. And then people are like, oh, better luck next time. So now what's happening is that these people who are experiencing amazing oppression, there's a ruckus in the wilderness. And they're like, what's going on here? Okay, imagine this. You're an intern at the temple. It's your first day. You want to impress your bosses. And they're like, hey, this is this really big thing happening in the wilderness. 
All right, you just go out and see what it is, okay? The reason that John, he doesn't tell us now, but he tells us later why they're trying to do that. In John chapter 11, the priests were friends with the Romans. They were paying money for political protection, and they didn't want things to get upset. They liked things as they were. And now there's this guy who's baptizing people in the desert, and they're like, uh-oh, party's over. How do we stop this? Okay? So that's, what, that's why these people are coming. They're not like spiritually curious people. Like, we want to be one with God. How do we experience that? They're like, ugh, we got a thing working. It's working for us. Please don't upset it. All right? We've got this thing. It's working. You're threatening that. And so they come, and what they see is insane. All right? Here's why it's insane. What do we see John doing in verse 28? What activity is he participating in? This all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was what? Baptizing. Okay. Here's what's really wild about that. Jews of that day and Jews of today don't get baptized. Okay? Who gets baptized? Gentiles. When people convert to Judaism, Gentiles, when the nations would convert to Judaism, they would, if you're male, get circumcised and then get baptized as a way to say, now, now we're identifying with God's people. It was foreign as it is today, as it would have been then, for Jewish people to get baptized. What's happening here? John is making a statement about how we experience oneness with God. It's a choice. It's a choice. You're not born into it. As uh, my, you know, the, the pastor I grew up with used to say, God don't have no grandkids. All right? Some of you are like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? Christianity is what the old, uh, what the Anabaptists called a voluntary religion. It's something you have to choose. If you're going to experience oneness with God, there's a choice involved in that. And John is saying, what will you choose? Are you going to trust in your religiosity? I grew up at church. I've even been a deacon. I've been a leader at church. I experienced oneness with God. Because of my activity. I experience oneness of God because just because of who I am. I'm, I'm good. And John's out there baptizing, and that is, that is starting to throw into question, are you? Or to experience this relationship, to experience this oneness, is there a choice that needs to be made? Will you say yes to Jesus? Not the people around you. You. John is inviting us into a moment of decision. If we're really going to experience oneness with Jesus, if, G if we're going to have Jesus move toward us, we have agency in this process. Nobody, nobody wakes up in a relationship with Jesus like, how in the world did I get here? What, what is this? I just, I don't know. I just kind of came to this church and boom. That's not to say that if you can't clearly articulate how you met Jesus, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, I've sat with people who've shared their story of how they met Jesus, and it's really, it's funny, because sometimes you're asking people to describe what it was like to jump in a barrel and go off of Niagara Falls. So, well, tell me what happened next. Did the barrel spin, or did it just roll off the waterfall? Like, I don't know. It was crazy. I just met Jesus. So, don't feel like, oh, if I can't clearly articulate how I met Jesus, I haven't met Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is to enter into this relationship, you have a choice. Do you want to be in this relationship? The choice is yours. And that's what John is inviting us into. If you want to experience oneness with God, 
You absolutely can, but you need to want to experience oneness with God. And if you don't want to, no judgment. You just keep doing what's working for you. But this is the invitation. What's the invitation? Well, the invitation is very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Verse 28. All this happened at Bethany. You would expect if a Messiah is coming, he's going to come in Jerusalem. That's the capital. But Jesus doesn't come in Jerusalem. He comes in Bethany. Why in the world does he come in Bethany? This is fascinating. In Ezekiel 11, remember you were reading that this morning in your quiet time? In Ezekiel 11, I think it's like verse 22. Ezekiel is sitting on a hill and he's looking out over Jerusalem and he sees God's spirit get up out of the temple. It's like, uh-oh. And God leaves. And you're like, uh-oh. And he heads to the east mountains and he stays there. And now you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. Like, this is really bad. And what's even worse, nobody noticed. They're playing church. God's like, I'm out. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're fine without you. We're playing church. That's not what we're doing. We're not doing this whole one with God thing. We're not living with you. We're not knowing you. We're not experiencing your presence, delighting in you, experiencing your joy. We're doing church, God. Get out of the way. And here's the invitation that John is inviting us into. Are we willing to leave that which no longer serves us? The temple had become a place where we played church. And so John says, hey, the last spot we saw God was by these mountains in Bethany. Let's go there. This is where he left the building. Let's just say, hey, we don't want that anymore. We don't want to play anymore. We don't want to do religion. We want you. So let's go where we last saw you. You know what's amazing? See, the the question, like, wait, wait, wait. You're You're saying that God is moving toward us, but you just said God left. How is God moving toward us if he left? Remember I said we have a choice and we always get what we want. Israel wanted the comfort and security that Baal provided. They lived in an agrarian society. Their weather apps were way more necessary than for us. For us, it's like, am I going to be chilly? For them, it was like, am I going to eat today? Is it going to rain And you know what was a surefire way for our neighbors, how they guarantee rain? Well, they go have orgies at the temple of Baal, and then Baal makes it rain. So let's do that. Right? So God said he'd provide. We need this rain. Let's trust Baal. So God sends prophets and says, I'll provide. I love you. I'm moving towards you. And they said, no, but uh, this is really good. We like this more. God says, no, no, no. I'll provide. I'll care. I'm moving toward you. They're like, no, we got this. And God says, okay, you want that? We want that. You have it. And he leaves. We all, we were like, well, why would they do that? That's so crazy. If God said that to me, I'd totally listen. We may not have idols that are, are stone statues that we bow to. So that certainly happens today. That might not be your idol But the thing that you're looking to for comfort and security in a world where there's not peace, YouTube, a codependent relationship, the approval of others, a balance in your bank account, a job that when people say, what do you do? You say, well, I, and they go, whoa, 
Those, I went to Princeton. I'll get over it eventually. Stupid rich kids. Those things that we look to for comfort and security, that's just what Israel was doing. And the question John is asking, by having this in the desert, is saying, are we willing to leave those things that no longer serve us? You know, for me, when I experience pain or stress, when I experience fear about relationships, I have things I run to that aren't God. You know, when I experience, like, oh, people are coming after me, it's, I, I love YouTube. It's like, oh, man, I just can numb this out, right? Oh, I'll watch these old SNLs. Oh, this is fine. Like, we're doing, we're doing great here. You know, I can, I can think a lot. I'm like, I'll just work my way out of this. I can devise a plan. Oh, like, they don't, if I say this right, if I do that, if I, do, if I just say it in just the right way, that, like, it avoids negative feelings, but it also names the problem so I'm not like a coward. It, boom, everything will do just fine. Until it's not. Until those things that we trusted to serve us stop. Until YouTube, which, you know, is crazy educational. Crazy great. Like, uh, you should... You, Marshall just turned me on to this video. Stevie Wonder uh, camera commercial, SNL from the 80s. Stevie Wonder was already my hero, but after that, it's amazing. Like, holy cow. There's amazing stuff on YouTube. I've learned a ton through YouTube. I've got a ton of sermon illustrations from YouTube, all right? Until it's not. Until life is painful and it becomes a coping mechanism. Relationships, we're made for relationships. Relationships are fantastic. They're life-giving. There's no life without relationships until we twist it and we need people's approval. If you don't like me, I don't know who I am. Are we willing to leave that which no longer serves us? That's what John is asking through his location saying, hey, the temple, all this religiosity, it's not serving us anymore. Are we willing to go where God is, though? Are we willing to leave that which no longer serves us? What are the things that you feel the Spirit of God inviting you to say, God, I just want to name, yeah, this no longer serves me. It, it's, it has in the past, it's gotten me thus far, but as the old saying goes, what brought you to the party ain't what always keeps you at the party. And this thing is no longer serving me. Are we willing to, to just say, Jesus, as you're moving toward me, I want to name that thing. I want to name that which is no longer serving me. See, one of the, we call that repentance in the Bible. Repentance. Repentance really, I mean, what's repentance? It sounds really hard and painful. It really just means to turn. To turn from that which is no longer serving us. To turn to receiving from God. To turn from trying to trusting. It's, it's a turn. It's to say, yeah, I, this thing, I, was, I thought, but God, you showed me, and now I trust. That's Repentance. One of the things that happens, though, when we talk about repentance and when people practice repentance, it can very easily, if we're not careful, slide into self-deprecation. I'm just the worst. Whoa, I'm like really bad. I'm bad news bears. 
So the last thing John's inviting us into is a question. How do we have a high view of Jesus and an honest view of ourselves? What would it look like for us to have a high view of Jesus and an honest view of ourselves? If he really is moving toward us, that changes how we see ourselves. So how do we have an honest view of ourselves and a high view of Jesus? Uh, when Luke and I, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were driving back from um, Iowa. Is that what it's called? Iowa? <laughs> the land of brown and gray. And when we were driving back from that place, it's really unfortunate, but we drove past a church that was literally called the Me Church. Did you see that? I, yeah. So you're just driving, I don't know where it was, somewhere in Iowa, and you just drive, it says Me Church. And I was like, oh, that's hilarious. And I, you know, tried to take a picture, but Luke was driving too fast. Um, <laughs> and so I found it on Google Maps, and the reason it's called the Me Church is because it's a Methodist Episcopalian church. I'm like, y'all should have done some branding homework before you <laughs> named that church. But it's like, man, I don't want to be part of a Me Church, right? I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to have a high view of myself, so I'm just the worst. And that's godliness. God loves it when I'm just like, man, I'm just so awful. I'm such a, I'm such a, and fill in the blank. That's honoring to God. I just want to ask is it really? Because you know whose name often gets associated with some of that thinking? Mr. the Baptist. Our friend John. But what's John really saying? Is John saying we need to have this self-deprecating view of ourselves? I don't think so. Look with me. This is, this is, this is where... This is where people get this. Uh, John 1, 26 and 27. I baptize with water... But among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. See, we hear that go, see, John, it's like, I'm the worst. So I should feel like I'm the worst. Okay, I don't believe that's what John is saying. All right, let's set the context a little bit. They're having Lollapalooza in the wilderness. A bunch of temple employees show up and are like, who are you? And they're like, are you this? Are you, are you Elijah. Okay, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, Elijah is a really big deal, okay? So they're like, are you one of the biggest deals in the Hebrew Bible? You're like, Why did they think he was Elijah? Because Elijah never dies in the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, a lot of the Apocrypha thinks about like Elijah's going to, like, boom, appear and Israel will be saved. So they're like, are you Elijah? Okay, that's a very big deal. He gathered a crowd of people living in poverty. They did not have much PTO, okay? But they took time off from their work because that was more important than living. These people are in poverty. They took time off their work to have this Lollapalooza thing in the desert with this guy who now is getting confused with Elijah. Are you Elijah? He's like, nope. They're not like, oh. Like, well, are you the prophet? Like, who's that? Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, one day a prophet like me is going to come. Listen to him. All right, another big figure. Like, are you that big figure? He's like, nope. Like, are you the Messiah? The biggest figure. He's like, nope. Okay, so here's a guy who gathered a huge crowd who's being confused with all these heroes. And he says, hey, but someone is coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of their sandal. This is not, say this is John, this is Jesus. What's not happening, to get a higher view of Jesus, here's what I need to do. That's, no, 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 no. John is saying this. To get a higher view of Jesus, this is what I need to do. Just look. Because look, you guys think I'm a really, you think I'm a really big deal. Look at him coming after me. I'm not unworthy to untie his sandals. In, uh, in the first century, 
rabbis had uh, disciples. And, you know, not just the first century. They had, they had disciples. And disciples were basically like interns. They had to do everything. They had to get this, the, you know, the, the rabbi's coffee. They had to like pick up his dry cleaning. They had to do everything for him. But there was one thing that disciples wouldn't do. They wouldn't touch the rabbi's feet. Why? Feet are gross. And not your feet. But feet are gross. And they were especially gross back then because, you know, this is before like sewage and just garbage went in the street and other things. Uh, so feet were gross. Who did clean the feet, though? Slaves. People who are, you, slaves, you clean my feet. Now, a guy who's getting confused for Messiah, a guy who's getting confused for Elijah, and a guy who's getting confused for Moses is a very big deal. In an honor-shame society, he's got a lot of the honor, okay? And he's getting confused, and he's saying, you guys think I'm a big deal. There's someone coming after me. I'm not even unworthy to touch his sandals. He's not doing this. He's just, look, he's way bigger. We can have an honest view of ourselves and an honest view of Jesus. We're going to be like, he's huge. He's huge, right? It's a Grand Canyon experience. If you've never had the privilege of going to Arizona, to the Grand Canyon, right? Arizona, I'm always like, I'm like, it's Arizona. If you've never had the privilege of going to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon, do it. There's a common experience lots of us have when we see it. Wow, that's really big. And I'm really small. Now, you don't leave and go, I'm just the worst. <laughs> I really, what, what else can I say to make the Grand Canyon bigger? You know, what if I just said, like, I'm like, what if I did this? No, it's just big. That's not saying we don't have an honest look at sin and when we make mistakes, owning that. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this self-deprecating of like what it means to honor God is just like, bam, beat myself up. It's not what John is doing. He's gotten a bad rap. He's saying God's so big. How do we have an honest view of ourselves? An honest view that can say, I need correction. I make mistakes. I'm human in need of grace. And look who's here. Because here's the other thing. If, if he's getting confused with Moses, Messiah, and Elijah all of whom no one would touch their sandals. But he's saying, there's someone coming, I can't untie his sandals. There's only one person who would fit that bill. God. John is saying, God is coming. And that's what's so beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful about verse 28. All of this happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Because what's happening after we start naming this? He's saying, we need to be cleansed. We need this oneness with God. We need, we need to live with him. And what, it, what does John see? The next day, in the spot where we last saw God's presence, God came out the way he came in. He's moving toward us. We saw him leave, and now he's coming back. He's moving toward us. And John just says, look, this is the, this is the one. And John 1 is all about how John the Baptist is a witness, and witness is just... Say what they see. So John sees Jesus coming toward him. He says, look, Jesus is here to, to cleanse us. He's moving toward us to make us whole. That's, what he was, that's the question he was trying to ask. How do we experience oneness with God? He's, he's coming. He's taking that first step. And then in verse 32, he sees the Spirit rest on Jesus. And then he just says, Jesus is here to do that for us. Messiah means anointed one. 
And they would anoint kings with oil. Jesus, this is his anointing. He's not anointed with oil, though. He's anointed with God's spirit. There is a person who God has said, I'm making you my home. The God-man, Jesus. And he's the first one who experiences this union with God, of God's spirit living inside of us. I was trying to explain this to someone once. I said, like, look, God lives in me. And they're like, oh, you think you're God? I was like, I don't know what I'm saying here that makes you think that. No, that's like Charles Manson, David Koresh. That's literally like David Koresh type stuff. Okay, no, I'm not saying I'm God. I'm saying God has made this human his home. And not just me because I'm like so funny, so godly, whatever. Anyone who makes the choice to say yes to Jesus, God makes you his home. And you experience oneness with him. That's what John is just saying. That's happening right now. That happens when we say yes to Jesus. When we're saying, hey, I'm going to leave the things that no longer serve me. I'm going to choose you, Jesus. I'm just going to look at you. And he moves toward. And he makes his home with us. Redemption is a very painful thing if we're the only ones moving toward it. Did you know that Oregon got bombed during World War II? I didn't. I learned this last week. Uh, Nobuo Fujita, he was a Japanese soldier. A, he was not a Japanese soldier. That's what he did. He was a human, human, in the image of God. Leonard Cohen once said, the problem with a massacre is there's no great place to stand. The problem with a massacre is there's no great place to stand. War, war is messy. War is awful and it's terrible. And if you don't believe that, you just, we, just have, we just need to see more. And so when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, several thousand soldiers died. The U.S. retaliated by bombing Tokyo in the Doolittle Raid with several thousand citizens died. Problem with the massacre is there's no great place to stand. Japanese would send um, balloons with bombs on them to the United States that would get dropped and would kill, they, they was killed civilians as well. The United States took several American citizens, American citizens, all up and down the West Coast, and put them in essentially prisons called internment camps. Because sometimes the lack of peace doesn't mean people aren't moving toward each other. It can mean they're moving toward each other in hostility. So uh, Mr. Fujita has given orders to drop bombs in a place called Brookings, Oregon. And so the plan was they would drop these bombs in the woods and that would start fires that would then spread to Oregon cities and kill civilians. And so he flies out and some people saw the plane, didn't think much of it, but he flies out over Oregon and he drops a bomb in the woods. First one doesn't go off. The second one goes off and starts a small fire. So Mr. Fujita uh, flies back to the submarine. He had taken, he, he had this 400-year-old samurai sword in his family. It was strapped to the back of the seat. He takes that off and he heads home. That moment haunted him for the rest of his life. He comes 
back home to Tokyo where he learned that the Japanese had lost the war. And it was hard. He's trying to rebuild a life. And he doesn't tell anybody about that story. Not his wife, not his daughter. And he just lived with this, in, this enduring shame. Till one day in, 19, in the 1960s, he gets a letter from the city of Brookings, Oregon, saying, we're having a Memorial Day parade, and we'd like you to be the guest of honor. And you're like, what? And yes, that is the perfect response to that. This was not necessarily like benevolence. Uh, has anyone here, raise your hand if you've not heard of Brookings, Oregon. I'd never heard of it. Okay, yeah. So tourism is not really a big, big thing in Brookings, Oregon. So they're like, how do we boost tourism? I know, we'll like, weren't we bombed during World War II? Let's bring the guy who did it here. That'll be cool, right? People will come to see that. And it, 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 they were trying to go viral, and it stirred up a lot of controversy. And people were like, how dare you guys do this? You shouldn't do this. And then it got politicized, and then a very famous World War II veteran stepped in and said, no, this needs to happen. This will be a great step toward peace. Uh, he was some guy from Massachusetts, Kennedy, who's president. So it happens, and uh, as he heads to Oregon, as he flies to Oregon, he grabs his samurai sword, which had been in his family for 400 years, and he takes it, because he's not sure what to expect. Are they moving toward me in peace, or are they going to punish me, or are they going to shame me? What's happening? So he's going to give the sword to them as a gift, if it was an act of peace, but if it wasn't, he was going to use it in like an honor uh, suicide. He's prepared to do that. When he gets there, he was met with an odd hero's welcome. An odd hero's welcome. People were celebrating him because it had become about this thing. Like, oh, let's make peace. It got, like, the whole motive of it got redeemed while he's coming there. So he comes there. Like, let's make they take him out to the spot where he had dropped bombs. And he planted a tree there. A pilot uh, let him, they, they took him up in this tiny little plane and they flew him over the the forest and they let him uh, ride the controls. The last time he was flying over there, he was trying to destroy and hurt people. And now he's flying with those people over their city. Amazing. Fast forward a couple years, he's back in Tokyo and three high school students from Brookings, Oregon say, we want to come visit you. Can we stay with you? So at his own personal expense, he housed these three high school students. He said, yeah, come on. And he housed them. They stayed there for a few months and when they went home, he said, for me, this is the day the war ended. Mr. Fujita spent the rest of his life, personal, at his own personal expense, uh, filling the, the library in Brookings, Oregon with Japanese books. And he would read American books. And he said, as a young man, if I had access to your stories, I would have never participated in this stupid war. When he died, a representative from Brookings, Oregon, came to be at his, de his uh, deathbed, and they made him an honorary citizen. And some of his ashes were scattered in that forest. Now, if that much beauty can come out of, and peace comes out of an attempt for a little podunk town in Oregon to go viral, how much more beauty can come out when the God of the universe with intention moves toward you? When John looks up and sees Jesus for the first time, he's coming toward him. 
How is Jesus moving toward you? How is he doing? He is. How is he? And the question we get to ask ourselves is, God, what's keeping me? What's keeping me from experiencing you? And as he shows us, as he shows us, hey, this is the thing you're trusting, we get to ask ourselves, will I let go of the things that no longer serve me? That's why we're here. We want to live with him. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who see what John saw. That your spirit comes and moves in us. You, you say of us, I want to make you home. And you don't just live anywhere, God. Your presence cleanses us. Your presence makes us worthy. Your presence, your presence declares us to be yours. God, I pray for those of us who feel far from you that we would experience that this morning. We would just say yes to Jesus. I ask all these things in your spirit's name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.